0: Hi folks, welcome to Fig Tree Ministries. Make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel by clicking that red subscribe button below and click that bell to make sure you get notified every time we upload a new video. Enjoy today's lesson. All right, seems like um, Zacchaeus is the story that never ends. So we're going to do one last, call it a PS, on Zacchaeus, because there's so many things to cover that I, I had to leave one thing out. But hopefully today it'll it'll help solidify what's going on, or some things that are going on, some things that we can pull out of the Zacchaeus story. So this picture right here, we've talked about it before. If you get up in the morning and you go to the Mount of Olives and look back to the west. So the sun is rising in the east over your shoulder. You get a great golden light over the city of Jerusalem. So that's looking towards the west at Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. You look over that really steep Kidron Valley. Many of you have walked either up or down that hill. That temple mount right there, the whole area that that building, that mosque today sits on, was built by Herod the Great. Now, it started being built before Jesus was born, and it continued to be built after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. But I just want to mention, we're going to be talking about the Herod family today, and he was a prolific builder. He that made the country very wealthy, but was a brutal king, and, and really hated by, by the people. So, He's made a lasting mark. He's done some amazing building projects, but ultimately, the people weren't real happy with him. So we'll talk a bit about Herod and his family as we uh, wrap up today. So we're going to do Zacchaeus, and then we're going to do one introduction to the very next thing that happens in the book of Luke, sometimes called the parable of the minas. A mina is a type of coin, so there's a dollar amount attached to it sometimes called the parable of the pounds, sometimes called the parable of the ten minas. These are just names that we give it. And I'm going to give you an introduction, because Jesus does something, he adds something. It's very similar to the parable of the talents that we find in Matthew, but Jesus is going to add something, and the addition only makes sense as we're leaving Jericho, heading to Jerusalem, and I'll show you why. Um, But it's a historical remark that he's making. So if you don't know that he's making a historical remark, the parable sounds a little funny. Okay. So if we go back to, that, this is how we'll end, the parable of the minas. So the past two weeks, this is going on three weeks, is we've tried to build out much of the context around the Zacchaeus story. And just like we do every time we read a Bible story, if you build the context around it, you start to see things that you didn't see before. And so, God willing, I was able to do that, where, where the picture, doesn't. it's not that God's Word changes, but you can see things deeper once you know the context around it. And of course, this is, this is only 10 verses of the Bible, and you can do this with just about any 10 verses in the Bible. And that makes the Bible a remarkable book because of the depth that you can go with small pieces of the text. So, some of the context that we've built over the past few weeks the first one is Jericho, right? So, the, the, it start, the story of Zacchaeus starts by them entering Jericho. Well, if you don't know what's going on with Jericho, then we miss something. So, Jericho is a very wealthy, Region or city, it's wealthy because down in that valley, the Rift Valley, they have it's amazing for growing crops because there's springs that come right out of the side of the mountain and makes it a very fertile area. Um, It was a commercial center, and that's why you have tax collectors there because, as the or toll collectors, I should say, they're collecting tolls along the road. So as people are passing through, and you're creating produce in Jericho, it makes it a very wealthy place. I mentioned two weeks ago that at one point, Mark Antony gifted Jericho to Cleopatra, his girlfriend, because it's one of the only places in the world that grows balsam. And balsam was something uh, that was, was desired around the world, and that, of course, was profitable for Cleopatra. Eventually, it went back to Herod the Great, and then eventually gets turned over to Rome. But that's, anyways. The point is, it's a wealthy area. Second, we have to know that Jericho is dominated by priests for about 200 years, and that makes the priests very wealthy. They become landowners in a sense, even though the Levites weren't supposed to get an inheritance. They're supposed to derive their their living or their sustenance. From the people, not from getting an inheritance. Well, they became very wealthy, and that became part of their power structure. So you have Jericho and priests. Last week, we introduced the idea uh, that within Judaism, you have all of these despised trades. So anybody who moves goods, because you assume that they're stealing from you. Tanners, people who work with tanning hides. Um, purple dyer. So if you remember, Lydia is a dyer of purple from Thyatira. Well, dyers of purple were considered unclean because of the, what you had to use, um, the waste products, human waste products that, it was urine actually, that would help the dyeing process that makes you unclean. Sorry for that description on a Sunday morning, but that's what it was. And then, so you have these despised trades and what happens is, The despised trades by the religious people, in a sense, create these caste systems where you have people that are kept outside the religious uh, community. And of course, God doesn't want that. God wants you to find a way to bring people into the religious community, into relationship with him, instead of putting up walls and keeping people out. So that was a big problem. And I think this problem even happens today. I mean, you can find places in the world that still have caste systems and people... We'll end up doing it by default because it's just human beings are too complex. But... So despised trades. that was something. Zacchaeus, of course, is in a despised trade, a tax collector, and they assume he's guilty. And then we finish the Zacchaeus context, and we'll, we'll add a little bit more to this today, with Jesus gives a warning, a warning to those in power. And it's that very last sentence, we'll review it uh, in a minute, that comes from Ezekiel 34, but it's a warning to the priests. And I think sometimes when we read Zacchaeus, so much of our focus is on Zacchaeus' salvation, we miss the warning that Jesus still applies today. If you're in leadership, watch out how you're treating people. Now, one of the main ideas, this is, uh, I, I put this on your sheet as a prominent theme that comes out of this, and I mentioned this last week, is they tended to put people into groups. Oh, you're a tanner? You're, you're unclean. You can't participate in the religious life. You're a tax collector? Well, you're guilty. But God doesn't want you to do that. That's not how God judges people. So you can't judge somebody simply by the group they're in. And that's a big problem as the religious leaders are marginalizing Tax collectors and sinners pushed out to the margins. And the whole story of Jesus is trying to pull those people back into the household of God. So we get this story about a guy named Zacchaeus, and it turns out his name means innocent. So you get a story about Zacchaeus, which names means innocent. And then you have to question, well, was he trying? Was he repenting? Was Was he not stealing? But the priests were still treating him as part of a group, right? And so the focus becomes, Jesus wants us to look at the individual. And of course, we can't see the heart of an individual. We judge people by outside appearances. God doesn't do that. He judges the heart. And we'll, hopefully I'll show you a piece from Ezekiel that will help solidify this idea right here. That the problem is how they're judging people. So okay, what I want to do today then is track this last verse. It's Luke nineteen ten. We're going to look at this last verse, and then we're going to go back to Ezekiel, which is what he's quoting or at least alluding to, and see what does Ezekiel, what's Ezekiel saying. Because so again, one of the things we have to always bring to our new when we read the New Testament is as Jesus is talking and doing these things, they have no New Testament. They're immersed in their, in their scriptures, the Old Testament. So every single thing he says or does is almost always an allusion to something in the Old Testament. And if we don't get that, we'll miss something about the story. So many scholars will call this Zacchaeus story a pronouncement story. This is number two on your sheet. A pronouncement story means... They tell the whole story of Zacchaeus and the very last sentence as Jesus is saying something is making the pronouncement. That's verse 10. And last week we talked about it, it's a prophetic pronouncement. He's he's aiming it at those in leadership, just as all the prophets did in the Old Testament. So the whole story builds up to this one sentence that tells you the whole what's going on. So if you have your Bible, you can look in Luke 19:10 and then we're going to immediately turn to Ezekiel, but it's this sentence right here. So, he says, For the Son of Man. Now, I mentioned last week, in the Old Testament, Son of Man shows up 107 times, 93 of them from Ezekiel. So, as soon as you hear Son of Man, odds are it's coming from Ezekiel. Next, He has come to seek and to save. That's Ezekiel 34, as we'll see in a minute that which was lost. And so the question becomes, how did they get lost? And we'll look at what Ezekiel is saying about that which was lost. So it's this one little sentence that, you know, as I mentioned, it's the bombshell that Jesus dropped that's pronouncing what he's doing. His pronouncement is announcing the judgment of those in power. Where do we get that from? So turn in your Bible to Ezekiel 34. So Ezekiel 34, the whole thing is about the priests, the shepherds of Israel. So let's look at, I'm going to go just through a couple different verses, but let's see how this whole thing starts, right? So if you look at verse one, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man. Now right there, we've got, that's what Jesus says. The son of man has come to seek and save the lost. Okay, so we know Son of Man is in Ezekiel. Son of Man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Now, that's anybody in leadership who's abusing their power. But in Jesus' day, the the leadership was the Sadducean aristocracy that had been in power and was colluding with Rome for years. So they're well entrenched in the power structures of first century Judaism. Now, anytime God is going to prophesy against your group, watch out, right? So prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to you shepherds of Israel. So if you think about when Jesus says, the son of man has come to seek and save, which is lost, it alludes back to this whole chapter. And the whole chapter is woe to you shepherds of Israel. That's what the audience would hear. That's a powerful way to is it brings God's words to mind and now you know his message who it's aimed at. So woe to you shepherds of Israel. What's the problem with the shepherds of Israel who only take care of yourself? They become selfish. They're they're getting they're gaining their wealth off the backs of the people that they're supposed to be helping. So this is Ezekiel 34. Um now Let's go verse three and four. You eat the curds, clothe yourself with the wool, slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak, or healed the sick, or bound up the injured. Now, does that sound like what Jesus is doing as he shows up in his ministry? He's strengthening the weak, he's healing the sick, he's binding, bounding up the the injured. And then here's where the Zacchaeus piece comes in. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. If you think of the whole uh, parable of the prodigal son, it starts out by saying Jesus told this parable. He starts with a hundred sheep, one was lost. He moves to a woman who had ten coins, one was lost. He moves to a man who had two sons, one was lost. The point is, go find the lost. Welcome them back into the father's household. So, the priests have not done this. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. Okay, so now it goes on. Obviously, if you read through it, God's not happy with the priests, but I want you to go down to verse 10. So, verse 10 in your Bible, Ezekiel 34, verse 10 says this This is what the sovereign Lord says I am against the shepherds. So, right there, Jesus is declaring God's opposition to the shepherds. And I will hold them accountable for my flock. And notice it's my flock. It's not your flock. It's my flock. So you have to treat them. It's God's flock. Remember who before who you stand, right? I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths and it will no longer be food for them. Now, what's really remarkable about this, the Sadducean aristocracy had been in power 200 years, say. In 70 AD, when the temple was destroyed, they're gone. Now, the priests, you can still track priests within Judaism, but that that whole Sadducee party, gone. I will remove them from tending the flock, and God did. That's Jesus showing up at the temple. This temple has become corrupted. It's going away. And that's a judgment. God's judgment showing up. So, very powerful. Now, verse 11. This is the the key verse right here. For this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I myself will search. I myself will come search for my sheep and look after them. So, God, you priests are now muddying the waters, so guess what? I'm going to come in and do it myself. This is when Jesus says, the Son of Man has come to seek and the saved the lost. This is one of the key verses. Now, how is God going to show up? So how does he end up doing this? And this will be my, the last thing we do, because this is going to point to Jesus. Look down at verse 22 and 23. So, Ezekiel 34, 22, and 23. And it says, I will save my flock, and they will no longer be plundered. I will judge between one sheep and another. So, who's the judge of the flock? God is. I will place over them one shepherd. So, who's the shepherd? Well, that's Jesus. So, when he says, the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost, he's saying, I'm the shepherd who showed up. I'm God's shepherd, the servant of David that's showing up to take over where you priests are failing, right? And he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. So, in one sentence, that entire uh, powerful message out of Ezekiel 34 comes flooding in to the whole Zacchaeus story. and. If we miss that, then we miss the idea of what that God cares particularly about those in leadership and those in the church. So we we know that the you know the Bible says he's going to judge God's going to judge more critically those in leadership and those who teach. Because you're the one leading the flock and you better get it right and you better not abuse the flock for your own purposes. So this message still applies today, and of course, things can still go wrong today, and human beings err, and those in leadership can err, and God's judgment is still intact, or still in effect, I should say. Okay, that's Ezekiel 34. Very important to know that. There's one more piece, though. Last week, we looked at some verses from um, the Torah, from Leviticus, from Numbers that said, what happens when you steal? If you, if you, if you steal, how do we restore the order and receive God's forgiveness? What's the restitution, right? And so if you steal an animal and kill it, it's four animals. If it's a sheep, if you steal money, you have to return the money plus 20%. You know, we, we have similar laws in America that are going to be, if you steal something, there's, we have to, we have to have a penalty so that you quit stealing. That's the point. As the, as, now, that's back when Moses was giving the law. As time goes on, the prophets show up, and they begin to summarize the law. They kind of, they, it's not really modifying it, but it's saying, look, here's what's the most important thing. Maintain justice. Do righteousness. They start commenting on God's, how God is using the law. So there's a question that's going to show up in Ezekiel. Who is righteous? Because this is what the question was Zacchaeus. If you're a tax collector, can you even be righteous and receive forgiveness? And the priest said no. God says, wait a minute. That's not how I judge people, right? So if we go to Ezekiel, where this idea of righteousness is, well, it's right next to Ezekiel 34. It's in the chapter just prior to it. Ezekiel 33. Right prior to Ezekiel 34, there's a whole section on what how God is going to deal with people individually. So, And it just so happens, these verses, by the way, if you're reading commentary on Zacchaeus, this verse will often get included by the person writing the commentary as a remark on what Zacchaeus is doing. Now, that's just interesting that you have a Two verses that could be tied to Zacchaeus right next to each other in Ezekiel. So Ezekiel 33, uh, let me say this, I meant, if you look um, look at verse 11 in your Bible, I didn't make a slide for it, but I just want to read verse 11 because verse 11 tells you what God is, where God's heart is. So, it's Ezekiel 33, verse 11. It says, um, Say to them, As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they would turn from their ways and live. Turn. Turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? So, God wants everybody to repent. He doesn't want anybody to do things that are evil and his judgment comes when you do something that's evil that's his point so we know that god wants everybody to repent and then when you repent god rewards you for your repentance and in ezekiel here we're we're dealing with metaphors we're dealing with the metaphor of death and the meta- metaphor of life and it's not the ultimate death or life it's the if you start if your life is consumed with sin, you will feel like you're dying, and you're spiritually dying. It's a, it weighs you down. It crushes you. If you do things that bring life, your spirit comes to life. So, it's more metaphorically the spirit in the, in the present, not what's going to happen in the future. So, anyways, listen to this, because this, this really fits the Zacchaeus story. He says, Therefore the Son of Man say to your people, this is now verse 12, if someone who is righteous disobeys, so think priests, hey you're you're we you've gone through all the procedures to restore and be forgiven, if someone who's righteous disobeys, that person's former righteousness will count for nothing. Now, for instance, if you had gone 20 years righteously leading something and then in the 21st year You get into all kinds of sin. God doesn't say, well, look, your past 20 years will save you from your current situation. It's like, no, if you begin sinning, the judgment is at hand for the sin of of that moment. So, it's not like God has a container that says, okay, you had all this righteousness in the past. I'll, I'll count that against what you're doing today. Then it says, if someone who is wicked repents that person's former wickedness will not bring condemnation. Condemnation. That's Zacchaeus. The righteous person who sins will not be allowed to live even though they were formerly righteous. Verse 13. If I tell a righteous person they will surely live, but then they trust in their righteousness and do evil, none of the righteous things that person had done will be remembered, for they will die of the evil they had done. Now, again, death meaning spiritual death in the moment. Verse 14, And if I say to a wicked person, you will surely die. Now, just, I want to make sure, that verse, you will surely die, that's the exact quote from from Adam and Eve. God says, if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die on this day. And we notice that they eat from the tree and they don't die. They live for like another 900 years. So what's the death that God's talking about? It's a spiritual death. It's a spiritual death in the moment. If you went from a perfectly clean spirit to a spirit that's now sinned, it's a form of death. It's not the ultimate death, but it's a form of death. So that, you will surely die, in quotes, comes right from Adam and Eve. So if if I say to a wicked person, you will surely die, but they turn away from their sin and do what is just and right if they give back what they took and pledge for a loan, and then listen to this sentence, if they return what they have stolen, follow the decrees that give life and do no evil, that person will surely live, they will not die. Now, does that sound like the Zacchaeus story? So, if Zacchaeus had repented and said, I will I'm no longer participating in that. Then God says, "Great, you will now your sins from the past will be will won't be remembered anymore and you will receive life." But the priests, of course, are saying, "Nope, not so fast." Okay. Last one, if you look down at uh 33 verse 20, you get this sentence. "Yet you Israelites Say the way of the Lord is not just. Because we think, well, wait a minute, doesn't my righteousness count for something? Right? The way of the Lord is not just, but I will judge each of you according to your own ways. The prophets are helping people clarify how God is going to judge them. And we would say the same thing. If somebody is a if someone's living a sinful life and they repent and they confess and they turn to God, God forgives their sins. But if the next day they go right back to thieving and whatever else, well God's going to punish him for that. It's um it's not the it's not saying do you lose your salvation. It's simply the the course of when you're saved, you have to take on the responsibility of your actions. All of us do that. And if you if you decide tomorrow to take up thievery or adultery or something, well, guess what? God's judgment is coming, because that's what happens when you go down a path of sin, is ultimately you'll receive God's judgment. So, it it's just very cool, the fact that these, these two verses can be connected to the Zacchaeus story. They're right next to each other in Ezekiel, and they're basically telling us, don't lump people into a group. If the individual repents, God will forgive all their their sins if the righteous person you priests decide to go down a path of sin and become corrupt, then you will be judged so don't think that don't think because Abraham is your father that you're saved nope that's not the way god 's justice works, and that's the way they were they were acting as if god's justice works, okay, so I just wanted to show you where that goes back that's the zacchaeus p s it goes back into ezekiel and it requires us to be familiar with what's going on in the with the the message of Ezekiel and how God is going to judge people. All right, now, now I'm going to totally shift gears. That's Zacchaeus. The story ends at verse ten. Now go to Luke 19, verse eleven, because this is going to start the very next portion of Luke, and it's going to be a parable, and what's important is that we need to understand the location of the where this parable is being told why that's important so it's the parable of the minas we're just going to do a brief introduction so that you understand the outline that Luke is putting this parable in so Luke 19 and it's 11 to 27 and this will all make sense in about 10 minutes you'll say ah I wish I would have known that years ago. Zacchaeus, the story's happening in Jericho. So if we go back to a map, there's ancient Jericho down in the Rift Valley. Jerusalem sits up on the mountains, 2,000, 3,000 feet above it. You have the Dead Sea to the south. You have the Sea of Galilee to the north. And this Jerusalem, or I'm sorry, yeah, Jerusalem, Jericho, that for the priests became. It's a there was a constant flow of priests going back and forth between Jerusalem and Jericho, so that's where the parable of the Good Samaritan makes sense. Okay, as we go closer, you have Jerusalem up in the mountains, Jericho down in that rift valley. It's a you it's about 13 miles downhill, and you end up uh, just like going from Jer- Julian down to Borrego Springs. The backside of the mountains, you're in, a, you're in a rift valley that's a desert. Now, in that area is an archaeological site. I'm going to put the name up. I'm not going to p- try to pronounce it because it's in Arabic. That name you see on the screen is the name of the archaeological site that they call it today. So I put that on the screen for anybody that would watch the video later. If they Google that, Tolul al Albu al Alik, you'll end up with getting all the information about what I'm going to talk about here. So if we go closer to Jericho, there's the name again. That's, the, that's what they call it today. That's the archaeological site. And it sits, now it's, I put it in a light blue square. There is a wadi. It's called Wadi Kelt, Q-E-L-T. And Wadi Kelt is the wadi that you walk up to go to, that's the road, the, the Jericho Road. That's what you go walk up to Jerusalem. And th- it goes like this. It follows this canyon right there. So that red line, and it goes right through that blue square. And the reason we have to know that is that Herod the Great, he built a palace complex, and the palace complex straddles the wadi. Because as you're walking to Jerusalem, Herod wants you to know who's in charge. Herod wants you to know that he is great. So he puts his palace right on the road. You're going to walk right through that, the palace grounds in order to make your way to Jerusalem. So the setting, Zacchaeus happens in Jericho. The very next place he's going is Jerusalem, and they're going to walk right through an, an old palace complex of Herod the Great. When Herod died, uh, the people hated Herod. They ransacked his palace. His son Archelaus, who we'll talk about in a minute, rebuilt the palace, and that's this is going to be where this whole parable comes in. Once, as the parable is being told, we have to remember there's an archaeological site right here. All that will make sense in a second. Okay, all of this comes from the ancient historian Josephus. So, just a couple words about Josephus. Many of you. Know who Josephus is, you probably have a copy of his writings, maybe. Obviously, that's not a portrait of Zacchaeus, that's what an artist made up later. We don't know what he looked like. Oh, what did I say, Zacchaeus or Josephus? So that's Josephus. He lived 37 to 100 AD, so in the latter half of the first century, and he's a historian writing about Jewish history for the Romans. Now, he was born. Yosef ben Matiyahu means Joseph, the son of the gift from God. That's what Matiyahu means. So he's born a Jew. He was a freedom fighter fighting against the Romans. He got captured, and they were going to put him to death. And he said, he made a a, a prophecy about Titus becoming the emperor, and he said, hey, I'll make a deal with you. If you take me on to become your to, into your court, I'll write history for you. Don't kill me. And so for a long time, Josephus was considered a traitor to the Jews because he was a first-century traitor to the Jews. He ends up taking the name Titus Flavius Josephus. Now, Titus, if you remember, is the general that destroyed the temple. Flavius is the family he's from. Flavius, uh, there's Titus. Domitian is a Flavian. So he takes the name of the Caesar, who's his sponsor. But anyways, his writings are prolific. Um, So everything I'm about to talk about going forward comes from Josephus. And I just want to give you a picture of who Josephus is. Christians kept his writings, but they really help us understand the history that was going on. So, okay. Now, Herod the Great. You guys all know Herod the Great. He's He's the king when Jesus was born. At least, that's how Matthew tells the story. He was king of Judea, given, pronounced king, 34 to 4 BC. He was a client king of Rome, and he was brutal. By the time of his death, he's paranoid. He's, he murders a son who he thinks is going to you know, try to take over from him. He's a brutal king. But he kept power, and he, had, he was a prolific builder. So he built and made the, the country very wealthy. He also made Caesar Augustus very wealthy, and he was very close to Caesar Augustus. He secured many benefits for the Jewish nation from Caesar Augustus. So, Herod the Great, right before he died, he had one of his sons assassinated, drowned in a pool down at that palace in Jericho, because he thought his son was going to try to get rid of him. He ended up writing a new will. How's he going to divide up his kingdom at death? And the kingdom ends up being divided like this. He has it divides between four kids, the first one being Archelaus, and that's our main topic today. But we know Archelaus from Matthew, because don't turn there, I'm just going to read it. Matthew 2.22 says, When they heard Archelaus was reigning in Judea, that's Archelaus, so we're going to talk about him in a minute, in place of his father Herod. So this Herod is Herod the Great, his son Archelaus took over in the region of Judea, which includes Jerusalem. So you have a son, Archelaus. You have a son, Antipas. He's the one at, Je- at Jesus' trial. You have a son, Philip. Caesarea Philippi is Philip's Caesarea. And then you have Salome. You have Salome. I'll leave it at that. Archelaus becomes what's called an ethnarch. You're reigning over a people group. It's not fully a king, and you divide the kingdom into four, which means you have an ethnarch, and then tetrarch, tetrarch, tetrarch. Meaning you divided your kingdom into four. Archelaus gets Judea, Antipas gets Galilee, Philip gets Golanitis, which is north of the Sea of Galilee, that's Caesarea Philippi, and then Salome just got a couple cities. Now. The main point is we know these two names. We know Antipas, and the, what we're going to talk about, because it relates to this parable, is Archelaus. I put that little diagram on your sheet just to help you remember it. It's a very confusing family tree, the Herod family. But let's talk about Archelaus for a second. So Herod died. He had just killed a son, and so there's a new will to be read. When they read the will, Archelaus is going to be elevated. And so the the soldiers go along with it, and Archelaus then goes up to Jerusalem, and he doesn't call himself king, but he's acting as a king. And the Passover celebration comes. So Jerusalem is packed with people, the Passover celebration is there, and they're upset about something that had happened with Herod the Great and a religious So there's protests happening. Let's put it that way. There's peaceful protests happening in Jerusalem and mostly peaceful protests happening in Jerusalem. And Archelaus begins to think that they want to overthrow him. He sees it as an uprising and he becomes paranoid. So he sends some Roman troops out. And according to Josephus, 3,000 people were killed. So, very first thing you do as the new king is kill 3,000 of your subjects. It's called winning friends and influencing people. So, he's a, obviously a brutal ruler. Shortly after that, he gets in a boat, he sails to Rome, because now he needs to be declared king by Caesar himself. So, he heads off to Rome to convince Caesar that he should be. he should get more of the kingdom. His brother Antipas gets on another boat. He sails off to Rome. He's going to try to convince Caesar not to give him that much land. And then, more importantly, a delegation of Jews from Jerusalem sail off to Rome. They're joined by a delegation from Rome, according to Josephus, 8,000 Jews from Rome, and they're going to say to, to Caesar Augustus, whatever you do, don't put him in charge of us, please. We don't want him as our king. Well, after Caesar hears everything, he puts Archelaus as the ethnarch. So he says, "Look, I'm not going to make you the full king. I'm going to make you a lower status king. We'll see how you do as king, right?" Well, as soon as Archelaus gets back to Jerusalem, he goes after those who opposed him because that's what you do, you seek revenge. And then he's eventually deposed by Caesar Augustus. He's kicked out of his his position and he's exiled somewhere up in Austria, north of Italy. Okay, all that to say, you have somebody who's going to be named king. He sails off to Rome to get that kingship, and a delegation of people go after him to try to convince the Caesar not to make him king. He comes back, and he enacts revenge on his people. That's Archelaus. So now what I want you to do is turn to Luke 19. We're going to start at verse 11. And watch how Jesus begins to tell this parable. Because this is where it'll start making sense. Now remember, they're in Jericho. So this is, the position of it is important. While they were listening to this, verse 11, he went on to tell this parable. So they know a parable's, excuse me, they know a parable's coming. Because he was near Jerusalem and people thought the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. Now we'll talk more about the parable next week. But watch verse 12. He said, A man of noble birth. So a man who was born into a royal family went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and to return. Does that sound familiar? Look at verse 14. So skip over 13. Go to 14. But his subjects hated him, and they sent a delegation after him to say, We don't want this man to be our king. So as Jesus starts to tell this parable, right at Jericho, next to where the Herod's palace complex is, he now starts to weave in the historical story of Archelaus. And they all know what he's talking about because they either lived through it or they had people in their family that lived through it. He goes, he tells the parable, we'll do that next week, and then look down at verse uh, verse 27. This is how it ends. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to become king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. That's exactly what Archelaus did. So what I wanted to do is just show you, because if you read this parable, next to the parable of the tenants, Matthew doesn't include any of these details. So you'd say, well, why? where are these details coming from? Why are they included in this parable? Well, first of all, it's historical data from Archelaus. And they're in Jericho, right next to where Archelaus would, would have rebuilt his father's palaces. So it fits the context of where Jesus is moving as he's heading up to Jerusalem. So if we go back to that Archelaus piece, there's a, there's a mostly peaceful protest in Jerusalem. 3000 people are killed unjustly so he's showing his brutality he sails off to Rome to plead with Caesar he's followed by a des- delegation of Jews who says we don't want this guy to be our king he becomes king anyways only to be deposed in the future but the main point is if we go back to this picture on the map right as you're leaving Jericho is that complex that Archelaus would have that re- Archelaus rebuilt so it fits the setting of the parable. Now, it adds a lot of confusion to the parable, because now how, do, how are we supposed to read these? Why does he include Archelaus in this? And we'll, we'll look at this parable over the next couple of weeks. Um, but I just wanted to give you today at least the introductory piece of the background. Where is it being told, and what is all that stuff about a king going off to a far country? So at least when you read it now, you've got the story that comes out of Josephus, of what Archelaus did. Okay, so that's—oh, wait a minute. I forgot to update my slide. So next week is not Zacchaeus' PS. Next week, we're going to look at the parable of the, of the Minas. So now that we know the context of the, the beginning and the end, that's Archelaus, we're going to pluck out the stuff in the middle of the parable. How do we read this parable about and what Jesus is saying? Uh, We'll digest that next week. So not Zacchaeus P.S. That would be a third time for Zacchaeus. Okay, so that's just introduction. I'm going to stop the the share here in a minute. So you guys are going to all come back on the screen. There you are. And uh, hopefully that adds a little bit of historical background. It's so cool how um, Jesus weaves that in. Again, we'll look at the parable next week more details about the parable. But it's very helpful to know, A, the history of Archelaus, and B, that Jericho, it fits the location where Jesus is telling that parable. Thanks for joining us under the fig tree for today's lesson. If you like this video, be sure to hit the like button below. And make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit that bell to be notified every time I upload a new lesson. You can also check out more teachings here at our YouTube channel or at figtreeteaching.com and enjoy learning about the sweetness of God's words.